You're listening to audio from St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. blessed this morning? All right, awesome. I have the privilege of uh, introducing to you uh, Reverend Dr. Jessica Legrone. Jessica is the dean of the chapel at Asbury Theological Seminary. She and her husband Jim, as well as their children uh, Drew and Kate, have been attending here at St. Luke for about 18 months. You'll mainly see them in the 930 service, Uh, but she plays an important role not just at Asbury, but within the context of our larger denomination. She's part of the Transition, Transitional Leadership Council for the Global Methodist Church and has been doing some fantastic work there. Uh, she's a prolific author and a sought-after preacher, so if you would, let's put our hands together and welcome Jessica. Well, good morning, church family. It is my delight to get to preach in the place where our family worships each Sunday. I told him in 9.30 for over a year, we've been sitting among you and worshiping, and I just was sure somebody in the 9.30 service would say, wait a minute, that's the lady that sits behind me. I said, you, we're going around now, you're next. You're preaching next week. I, w- I wanna know in this room, if there's anybody here that their favorite book of the Bible is the book of Haggai. Anybody claim Haggai as their favorite? No? I wonder if we listed our top 10 favorite books, if anybody would have Haggai in the top 10. I wonder if there's some of us that aren't sure that there is a book of the Bible named Haggai. You're, You're not alone if you weren't sure about that. Haggai is tucked away at the end, the tail end of the Old Testament, right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. I mean, right between the Z's. It's in those last dregs of the Old Testament, right before we turn the page to the New Testament, called the Minor Prophets. And we need to say up front, the Minor Prophets aren't minor because their message is anything minor. They carry some really important content. It's just that they knew how to do it in a really succinct way. They pack a punch in these very short books, so they're called Minor Prophets. Uh, Haggai is not quite the shortest book in the Bible. There are a few books that have one chapter, but Haggai is close. He only gets two chapters, just 38 verses. In total content, Haggai makes up uh, two-tenths of a percent of the content of Scripture. That's 0.2 percent of the content of Scripture. So I asked Pastor Brian, what why did you decide to do a series on Haggai right here at the beginning of 2024? And he said, it sounds like fun. I don't know. (laughs) And then he said, you go first. (laughs) So here I am. Thanks a lot. The Old Testament is a lot more memorable in its beginnings than it is in its endings, right? It starts out with Genesis. That would make a lot of our lists of favorite books. It moves quickly on to Exodus. Now, that's a great story. We love 
Exodus, right? Lots of people love Exodus. They, they love it so much they make movies about it. There are whole generations who can't even read the Ten Commandments without picturing in their head Charlton Heston holding it up over his, over his head. There are new generations who can't read the book of Exodus or that story without thinking of the movie The Prince of Egypt. Um, we love the Exodus so much that we make movies about it, but there's a whole other section that comes after that in the Old Testament, and it's something we don't talk about much. We don't talk about the exile. We don't talk about the exile. It's not our favorite part of the Old Testament. We don't make movies about it. My apologies if you're somebody with children and grandchildren that watched the movie Encanto and just got the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, No, No, out of your head, because it's back. We don't talk about the exile. If the exodus right there at the beginning is like the Old Testament's victory story. It's a big W for the people of God, a big win. Oh, the exile's like the other X at the other end of the Old Testament. And it's the opposite. It's, it's a definite downer. You're welcome. The exodus is great. God's people, you know, they were slaves in Egypt. They escaped. God parted the Red Sea miraculously. Of course, they did wander in the desert for 40 years. There were no GPSs back then. But finally, they did make it into the promised land, and it was glorious. They got to live free, set up a home base where they could grow crops and grow families. And, and once they did settle down, they got busy building a temple. And the temple takes up a lot of space in the Old Testament. If you're somebody who made a New Year's resolution to read the Bible through from cover to cover, right about now you're getting a lot of information about the temple because there are pages and pages of descriptions and details and lists upon lists all about how to build the temple and what the measurements are and what goes into each space. And then there are all these wonderful kind of accessories and utensils. There's elaborate altars in it built with gold. There's golden lampstand and ceremonial bowls and instruments and robes and bejeweled accessories that go over them for the priests. The temple gets a lot of airtime in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of detail that goes into that. Why is that? Why does God make such a big deal out of the temple? Well, it's supposed to be a place that inspires awe and worship, a place where people can go and connect with God. That's God's longing in his heart to be one with his people and for them to worship him. It was supposed to be a holy place full of holy things so that God's people could worship a holy God. You know, the people of Israel were, were never known for their strength or their wealth. When, when you thought of these people, you never pictured like a big army. You never pictured a big storehouse full of grain or wealth. What you pictured was this temple. It, it was their identity. Their house of worship was what defined them. That was the structure not just because it was a beautiful place filled with beautiful things, but because of their God and their desire to go there and connect with him. And that, well, that's probably why the next part of the story is so hard to tell. Maybe this is why we don't talk about the exile, why we don't teach much about it or preach much about it, why we definitely don't make movies about it. I think it's because God's people well, they really brought it on themselves. 
once they were home in the promised land, even after that beautiful temple was built, after some time, they stopped living for God. Disobedience crept into their lives. They started living for themselves and putting themselves first and ignoring God. Instead of being different from all the nations around them, they started to act just like everyone else. The temple still stood at the center of their land, but it was not at the center of their lives. They weren't putting God's first, and boy, God spoke to them about that. I mean, he had several things to say. God spoke up, and he tried to warn them. He begged them. He really tried to reach out to his people through all these different prophets. But when they didn't listen, when they wouldn't listen, he stopped protecting them. Their enemies, the the Babylonians, rushed in and destroyed their homes and really destroyed their land as well and killed many of the people. And the rest of them, they just scooped up and carried off to the evil land of Babylon where they would be captives. Really kind of a step backwards for them back into captivity. And perhaps the most crushing thing that the Babylonians did was that they crushed the temple. They destroyed it. God's holy place, the the defining center of God's people was knocked down. And then they stole all the objects inside of it. Those weren't holy objects to them. They were just, you know, pretty things. Gold and silver and jewels, why they took all of that back to Babylon with them. So if the Exodus was, you know, the fun story where people were freed from slavery and got to go and claim the promised land, the other ex, the exile, it's kind of that in reverse. It's when they got kicked out of the promised land Really, they got burned out, knocked down, dragged out of the promised land, and taken back to Babylon. I can see why we didn't make any movies about this, can't you? It is not the happiest part of our story. And this dramatic part of Israel's story is the territory of the major prophets. They talk about it all the time. This warning about not following God, about coming back to him the prediction of the exile, the begging to come back. These are the major prophets that are the big names that you can find in your Bibles. Even when two pages maybe get stuck together, you don't miss them. That's what happens with Haggai. Major prophets with names like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And the people then spent 70 years living in Babylon. That's a long time. They were defeated and depressed. They're strangers in a strange land. They're captives to the Babylonians. They can't do what they want. And then finally, after 70 years passes, they they get the news that they can go home. There's a new ruler in the land. The conquerors have been conquered, and they get the call that it's time to go home. Actually, it's a three-part call. They're called to return to the promised land. They're called to rebuild the temple And they're called to restore all of the items that were precious back to the temple. They're not just called to go home, not just to return, but they're going to rebuild the spiritual center of their people, the center of worship and identity. They're going to restore all the gold and silver and beautiful articles that were meant to be used in worship. They're going to return, rebuild, and restore all because God is for them. And he wants his people back. 
But when they return home, the promised land doesn't look so promising anymore. I mean, to be destroyed and knocked down and then left alone for 70 years, ruins don't get any better when they're ruined. And so they come home to find themselves in just a devastated place. It doesn't look like a land flowing with milk and honey anymore. They find a wrecked city, a destroyed economy, no crops or ways for them to survive. 70 plus years, this land has been left alone and there are the ruins of their precious temple. And, and it seems like they thought about step two once they returned, it seems like they, they maybe considered rebuilding the temple. Like maybe they even put a foundation down for it, but then they kind of got distracted. There was just so much else to do. There were so many things on their to-do list. They had houses to rebuild, businesses to restart, families to get settled. And so they just, well, they kind of ignored it. They returned, but they did not rebuild and they certainly didn't restore all of the worship articles back to the temple. I'm not sure what they did with them in the meantime. I mean, they brought them back. I don't know if they like used the altars for their coffee tables or if they ate cereal out of the ceremonial bowls. You know, maybe somebody said, that's a lovely lampstand in your sitting room. Wherever did you get it? Well, actually it belongs in the temple. And then along came Haggai, our wonderful, very brief prophet Haggai. He has one message for God's people. Let's read from the first chapter of Haggai. I'll read it for us. The first eight verses, and listen carefully for some of these names. If any of you are considering, you know, naming a child or recommending a name for a grandchild, there's some really good ones in here. Haggai chapter one, verses one through eight. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, there's a good one, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up in the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, that's the temple, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Consider the life that Haggai is describing for them here. The temple, well, it's flattened. It is still destroyed. They have no spiritual center. They've had the time and resources to rebuild their own houses to the point that Haggai refers to them as paneled houses. That means they did more than just, you know, set up a cot and put walls around it. Oh, they decorated. They remodeled. They worked on their own homes. Meanwhile, the temple lay in ruins. 
They had to walk past the temple in ruins on their way to Home Depot and back to get all these things for their houses. There's no place for them to worship God. There's no spiritual center for God's people, no time or energy or resources to restore God's house. But have you seen their lovely marble countertops? At home, do you check out their, you know, matching stainless steel appliances? All kinds of time and resources went into their homes. Haggai is reminding them that without a house for God, they really don't know how to be God's people, while all the time they're hiring contractors and comparing crown molding. I I don't believe these people had lost their love for God. They just really don't know where to begin. They're not quite sure how to rebuild God's house. Their vision of what it was in the past was so glorious that Haggai even gives a hint in here that maybe they're a little intimidated by that, not sure that they could ever restore it to its former glory. And God's people returning from exile, well, they're like us, (laughs) avoidant creatures. We can be that sometimes, whatever our excuse, we We live in sort of paneled houses, all the things that we give time and energy and resources to that we think are so important. God's people are like that too, dressing up the details, majoring on the minors, all the while not focusing on things of eternal importance. I um, heard a term for this in the last couple of weeks from a podcast I listened to. It's something called bike shedding. Have you ever heard of bike shedding? Someone coined this term when they were observing that if a committee of people is gathered to make plans to build a new power plant, and they're told, you know, next to the power plant, you'll also need to build a little bike shed, a place for the people who ride their bikes to work to keep them out of the rain and lock them up, that if they have an hour-long meeting to discuss these plans, they will spend 45 minutes of that meeting talking about the bike shed and making plans for it, and maybe two and a half minutes on the actual topic of the meeting, the power plant. Some of you have been to this meeting over and over again. They'll spend 45 minutes bike shedding, and then at the end, they'll say, hey, good meeting, and grab a donut and go back to their offices, and then come back the next week. This is actually how we're built as humans sometimes. We can spend so much time and energy focused on inconsequential things and never get to the big purpose of what we're called to do. We will have the most beautiful, best decorated bike sheds of anyone. While the power plant that we were called to build can sometimes blow up in our face. Haggai says to this people, you had one job after you returned. Remember, you were supposed to rebuild and you have done everything but. Meanwhile, he describes their lives this way. See if this ever sounds familiar to you. You are working so hard, but it feels like you're not making any progress. You eat, but then you're always hungry. You drink, but you're never full. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that seems like it has a hole in it, and just like that, it's empty again at the end of the month. Ouch. You're doing so much, Haggai says, not so little. You're doing so much, but it feels like you're spinning your wheels all because God is not at the center. 
Haggai's describing a people who have returned to God, but they haven't rebuilt their spiritual center. And that means that the promised land is not the promise that it once was. Did you know you can return to God and still have a life that is marked by anxiety and worry, by exhaustion and isolation and loneliness? A life right there in God's promised land, but filled with joylessness instead of joy. You can come home and still not be whole. Did you know that the temple that God wants to rebuild is actually you? I didn't make that up. That's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What does that even mean? It means of all the places in the world that God could put down spiritual roots of all the places in the world God wants restored to take up residence, of all the places God's Holy Spirit could dwell now, he picks you. That when you say yes to Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in, and now you, you are a holy place of worship. Coming home to God is great. But I want to remind you this morning that the Christian faith is way more than forgiveness. And at the end, a promised eternal home with God. There's so much more in the middle. God doesn't just want us home. He wants us whole. The good news is we're Methodists. We get this. We believe that God can and will actually restore us fully, that he's working on each of us to build a spiritual house that he can dwell in, that he's building us together as a community, as a spiritual house for him to dwell. We believe God's not just wanting it, but that he will do it. Methodism's relentless optimism, really the reason that it exists, is that we believe the grace of God not only saves us and brings us home, but it rebuilds us. It restores us that we don't have to stay lying in that anxious place where we spin our wheels all the time, but that God can remake us into something holy and whole. We say it here at St. Luke. We're a place of what? Hope and then healing and wholeness. We believe that. Most of you have um, left a gathering before and been getting out on the road when somebody says to you, hey, call me when you get home. I just want to make sure you're safe. Now it's, you know, text me when you get home. Who says that? Maybe a friend, uh, maybe a, a cousin. It, really, it's a mother. That's a mother that says that. Call me when you get home. I just want to make sure. I am speaking for all the moms out there when I say, we always want to call when you get home. Or a text. A text is fine. Even if you're 80 and we're 105, call us. We want to know. <laughs> when you get home, we want that text, that call. And what you say in that is you often say, we made it safe and sound. Safe and sound. We say that all the time. Do you even know where that phrase comes from? Well, it comes from old-time battleships. When they won their battles, they could return home safe, right? They came back into port triumphant from the battle that they really survived and won, but often they had been damaged in battle. Even if they won, they would come back home, sometimes with cannonball-sized holes in the size of the ship, 
And without any other attention, those ships could sink right there at their home dock. So they needed more than just to be safe. They needed to be restored, repaired, worked on, brought back to their original state of being. And once they were home and repaired, you could say they were safe and sound. That's where it comes from. This is God's desire for us this morning. For us as a community, I really want you to hear this one thing. If you are sometimes limping into church on Sunday morning, coming home, and people say, hey, good to see you, how are you, how you been? And you're like, I'm good, I'm fine, it's fine, everything's fine, it's all fine. (laughs) And that's just kind of the paneled walls that you've built and put up. It's okay to come in here not fine. This is the home port. This is where we return to be safe, but God will make us sound. He wants to restore us here. He not only has that desire, he has that power. And probably Haggai's one claim to fame there in those two little chapters at the end of the Old Testament is that he told God's people to do something and they did it. If you read any of the other prophets, minor or major, you will find out this is a very rare occurrence that the people followed what the prophets said. Haggai told them, return, rebuild, restore, and they did it. They rebuilt God's house, and it was glorious because it had God's presence. They restored all of those treasures, not just as cereal bowls and ornaments. They brought back all of the things that could help them to worship God. And here's the great thing. When holy things are restored to their holy place that are meant for worship, when they're used in the worship of God, their true beauty can be seen and experienced. One of the true beautiful things about a person of God who has been rebuilt is that their gifts can be restored. Our gifts can be made available to worship God. It it doesn't really matter if your gift is music or math. It doesn't matter if you have gifts as an accountant or an artist. God will use it. You can glorify him with it. You can be going to class or playing with your grandkids or sitting in a board meeting, and you can glorify him with all the gifts that he's given you, even the bike sheds, can be glorious centers for worship. The tiniest things, when rebuilt, can be restored for God's purposes. So if you're really good at majoring in the minors, the good news is with God at the center, even the minors can worship. That's the miracle of Haggai, not just that the people did it, but in this tiny sliver of scripture, 0.2% of the Bible, it contains the core of the gospel. A little piece of scripture, and it's enough to get us returned to God, rebuilt in his image, and restored to worship. That is the power of Haggai's message, and the power of scripture, and the power of God, that God can bring us home, and make us whole, and use our gifts to worship him, all from a tiny little minor prophet, two chapters. What can he do with you? 0.2% of the gospel is still the gospel, alive and active, powerful and true. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you didn't leave us in a far country. You brought us home. And we thank you that 
when we come home, you still want to restore us and return us to our original safe and sound state. God, some of us have come limping in today, so rebuild us, restore us, and make our gifts yours. And as we come to worship at your holy table today, Lord, make us your place of worship. Let your spirit dwell in us and overflow into a world that is broken down and in need. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.